All right, well, good morning. So I became a father at the age of, the ripe old age of 40, okay? Um, it was a long time waiting. And it was a very exciting thing for me in my life. And I will tell you that one of my very favorite things coming home is my little girl who's three now, I will hear, Daddy! And she will come running. And I will reach down and I'll scoop her in my arms and give her the biggest hug that I can. And then she'll go on off and tell me what she wants to show me and all that kind of stuff. Wonderful, wonderful feeling to hear that ear-piercing, screaming, Daddy. And it makes me think, because I, 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 the other night, my wife was out of town with the kids. I stayed up late watching YouTube videos of soldiers coming home. Have you seen these? Moms, dads, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters coming home. But I watched the dads coming home. I watched, and I just typed, soldier surprises daughter coming home. And I watched all these dads coming home to their daughters and surprising them. It's awesome. Okay, and if you can get through it without tearing up and crying and making distorted faces, then you're, you're more, you got more stoic ability than I do. It's amazing what will happen. And it's almost inevitable. Soldier shows up, surprises daughter. Daughter's in a classroom, at a football stadium, maybe at a ballpark, maybe at home. And the kid will look and see their dad and the shock will come over their face. And they'll do one of two things. They'll either fall to the ground in a puddle of emotion and then slowly get up and run to dad. Or they will just go, daddy! And they will take off in a dead sprint and jump up and grab. And every one of them does the same thing. They put their head on the shoulder and they just hold on. Let me give you an example. I want you to watch this girl. This is from 2011. Watch this girl's reaction. She's totally speechless. Hi, my name is Hannah Eschick. I'm 10 years old and I go to Randolph Elementary School. My dad, Master Sergeant Joe Myers, is in Iraq right now. Where does that emotion come from? You know, these kids, their dads are gone. And they, when they see them, all of the, I've missed you, dad. You've been away, dad, just comes out. They can't even control it. They run, they cry. It is a beautiful picture of how important a father is in our lives. And I wanted to show you that today because today we're going to look at a psalm that David wrote. And it's going to be a psalm that ultimately is going to be one that he expresses what it feels like when he feels like his dad is away. When his dad is not there. And notice I said when he feels because we know that God does not leave us, that he is with us. But this is what he feels. And I picked this psalm because of what we're going to see in it. Let me show you what I think we're going to see. We're going to see raw honesty. 
about how we might feel when our circumstances or our hearts, which, by the way, are constantly changing, make us feel or convince us that God is not listening, that he is not near, or that he is not for us. But then we're going to see this. We're going to see an honest reflection of who God is. David is going to give us an honest reflection of who God has proven himself to be, his character, which, by the way, never changes. That God is loving and generous. And I hope today, with it being Father's Day, that if we could leave today with this thought, it's this, that our God is a good father despite what the world or our experiences or our circumstances might cause us to think. We're going to see David... A man after God's own heart go from being disoriented to reoriented, from flailing in emotion to standing firm in the truth again. We're going to see David do something. He is not going to hold back how he feels, but he's going to hold on to what is real, what he knows about God. So if you will turn to Psalm 13, and we're going to look at this. Now, I want to throw this at you first. Why would God give us a psalm like this? As we look at these questions, as we look at David pour out his raw emotion and then have an honest reflection about what is real, I want to say this. I think it's because God wants us to know we can do this with him. He can handle our questions, our frustrations, our confusion, and at the same time remind us that he is a good father. Now, this is a lament psalm, and, and as we've been walking through psalms this summer, um, we've looked at wisdom psalms, there's thanksgiving psalms, praise psalms. Um, this is a lament psalm, and it is a psalm of outcrying, okay? And there's a couple things about lament psalms. Let me give you a, a few facts real quick. When you look at, there's 150 psalms, about 68 psalms, depending on how you specifically categorize them, are lament psalms. Think about that. That's almost half of the psalms are psalms of crying out, of lament. Why? Because life is hard. It's full of difficulty. It's full of lost hopes, unmet expectations, and times of struggle. And here's some characteristics of lament psalm. You're going to see a, they will question God's goodness or his nearest or his nearness. And it will call that into question. Because of some event or season that the writer is going through, a lament psalm will present without excuse the reality of pain and a God's apparent, apparent slowness to respond. It will often look back at God's faithfulness and look forward to God's deliverance. What he has done and what he will do. And we're going to see these things in these six verses. Okay, so if you will, let's read this first two verses. And I want you to know something. These are questions of disorientation. David is seeking to make God answer him because he's saying, you are not responding. You are not taking action. So he asks these questions. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now notice notice this. How long, how long, how long, how long? He doesn't ask why. 
This is about timing, not about purpose. He's basically saying, Lord, I believe that you can deliver, but how long must I endure this? Are you ever going to show up? And notice this as we walk through this, there's a little bit of accusation in here. Let me give you an example. This is like when your kid comes up to you and says, instead of saying, what time is dinner? They look at you and say, how long are you going to let me starve? Okay. There's a little bit of accusation. I'm hungry. I need something. How long are you going to let me suffer? How long are you going to let me starve instead of just what time's dinner? It's not about facts. It's not about why. It's about how long. And there's accusation in here. And there's impatience. And that impatience is going to lead to extreme statements. So look at, look at what he says here. He says, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? <laughs> Not a week. He says, oh, I feel I'm in this, long, this period of long suffering and struggle. And it feels like it's going to last forever. It's never going to end. Have you ever been nauseous? The worst food poisoning I ever had. I don't remember where I ate, and that's not important. Because I can't even remember. All I can remember is how awful I felt and how bad it was. And I remember that it felt like it was just one minute felt like five hours. You know what I'm talking about? I went to Dr. Chris Imperial's office right over here. He's my doctor. I went in. I was like, you've got to give me something. I want a shot. I want a shot right here that will take the pain away. And he said to me, I will do that because I can see by the look on your face and how bad you look that I will do that for you. I'll be back in a few minutes. And I laid down on the ground in the doctor's office, writhing, asking God for death. And I am not joking. I wanted it to end and it felt like an eternity. And that's what, and this is extreme. Will you forget me forever? The next one's not any better. How long will you hide your face from me? God, let me tell you what, people. God is omnipresent, okay? The, Romans 1 tells us that he is easily seen in all that is created. But he feels like he has moved away. He is hiding from me. God, I, God is in the process of revealing himself, by the way. But in that moment, as I struggle, as David struggles, we feel like he hides his face from us. He's given me the cold shoulder. He won't engage with me. Have you ever had that experience with a spouse or a friend where you go, you look at him and you're like, are you mad at me? My wife and I do this all the time. Are, are you mad at me? Did I do something? That's what David's feeling. And here's the deal. In that void, in that lack of response, he's filling it with negativity. You're hiding. You don't want to answer. Look at the next one. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart? Notice what he says here. How long shall I take counsel in my soul? What is he saying here? Who do I have to go to? Me. The only person I have to take counsel or encouragement is myself. I'm completely alone. You see the extremity of this statement? I'm all alone. No one else is struggling. No one has ever struggled with this before. No one can help me. I am all by myself. 
Lord, you have left me alone. No one understands. And then look at this one. Having sorrow in my heart all the day long, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Sometimes we feel that, don't we? We're losing. The world is winning. The enemy is winning. But look at what he says here. How long will my enemy, even the wicked, are prospering? What good is my relationship with you, God, if the enemy is above me and I'm the one suffering? Where are you? How long will you let this happen? The grass is greener. You've left me. You're a God who doesn't act. You let the wicked be exalted over me, my enemy. Makes me think about what are some of our enemies? What are some of our adversaries that we might have? Might be an actual enemy. You might actually have an enemy. A broken relationship, a business partner gone wrong. For most of it, it's other things. Circumstances like we're directionless, directionless. Don't know where you want me to go, God. I got no job and I don't have anything on the horizon. I'm begging you, Lord, just please speak. Please show me. Please give me something. Maybe it's loneliness or isolation. Maybe it's an unmet hope like infertility or broken marriage. Maybe it's an illness. But these things that have overcome me that seem like, wow, God, you're a God of restoration, a God of reconciliation, yet these things seem to be living and striving in this world, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to walk with you. I'm begging for you to show up, and yet nothing's happening. My enemy wins. I'm losing. We beg God for relief, but no relief comes. And we say, how long, how long? And I love this brutal honesty. As he just lays out his honest questions, his raw honesty before the Lord. Lord, this is how I feel. Where are you? Look at what's next. This is going to be his petition. Okay? This is his pleading. He's going to say, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Acknowledge me. Give me something. Give me some info. Enlighten my eyes. Help me understand. Why am I going through this? Help me understand what's happening. Why aren't you responding? Or, here's what's going to happen. God, I will sleep the sleep of death. Now, some people have looked at the sleep of death here, and they would say that might be just a deep depression. It might be actual death. One commentator said this, it may be, that I will just succumb and lose my faith and confidence in you altogether. Then he says this, my enemy will say, I have overcome him. He's talking about his enemy gloating over him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. This makes me think back. David is not unfamiliar with Exodus. And I think he's thinking about Moses here. If you remember when The Israelites had come out of Egypt and Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law and the Israelites were like, wow, our leader's not here. He's away. He's not present with us. So what do we want? We want another God. 
And so they, Aaron, you got to make us a God. And so they took all the gold and the jewelry and they melted it down and made a golden calf and they worship him. And God looks down and he's talking with Moses and he says, look at those people. I'm going to just destroy all of them and start over with you, Moses. And Moses beseeches the Lord. And he says, Lord, if you do that, then your, their enemies will gloat. They will say, you, look, that's the God that's brought out Israel just to do harm to them. And God, testing Moses, doesn't hurt the Israelites because those were his people. He always had that plan. But I think that's what David's remembering here. David's looking back and going, my enemies will gloat. God, you can't let that happen. That's bad for your name. Don't let the enemies win. That makes you look bad. So he is beseeching him now. See, David, through these questions and this petition, he is feeling under attack and abandoned. And I want to ask you an honest question. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? For a moment? For a season? Or maybe even right now? Have you ever felt that God isn't listening to you? That he doesn't care? David was honest in this psalm. This is David. Remember, David is a man after God's own heart. David is the king of Israel, anointed. Special relationship with the Lord, yet he's being honest. Can we be honest? What keeps us from being honest? A couple things I thought of on this. Sometimes we know we are not being honest, and we don't want to. Or we won't. Sometimes it's a combination of pride and fear on our part. Maybe you feel the need to put up a front to make sure you have it all looking good for others to see. Maybe it's the pressure you feel to be a godly person, but a godly person would never question God, would they? Maybe you don't want to be demanding or disrespectful to God. Maybe you don't want to appear to lack faith. That's why I like this song. Because David's just honest about where he is. That's how you talk to your father in heaven. It's not with pretense. It's not with, it's not with special words or gut it up. It's, he is a father who knows you. It's one of the great things I know that I've loved about being a dad myself is it reminds me now what it looks like to be a child. And in that, what we are, the adopted children of God, sons and daughters. And he says, treat me like your father. Have childlike faith as you approach me. My daughter tells me what she needs all the time. And she's completely honest and completely raw about what she wants, when she wants it, how she wants it. And as a good father, I don't always give her what she wants. Man, I appreciate her honesty. And that's what our father wants from us. Now, some of us, we're not honest because we don't know we feel something. We don't know it's even there. So we can't be honest because we're not even aware that it's there. Let me give you an example. This last week, it dawned on me partly because someone called me out and partly because I felt very convicted by it. But I have gone through a season where I've had, I've been overly negative and overly argumentative. And it's come out of me like a poison. 
And I couldn't have put words to it. I couldn't have thought, thought those words. I couldn't have spoken those words until someone said to me, you know, Zach, something's wrong. You seem really negative, more so. And I thought about it and I went, wow, I had no idea that's how I was coming across. I had no idea where I was. So sometimes we're not honest with God because we don't want to be or we don't feel like we can. We don't have to feel freedom. Sometimes it's because we don't know where we are and we need to do some soul searching. Let me challenge you. If you don't feel the freedom to, to just humble yourself and know you're in a safe place with the Lord and you can be honest. But if you don't know, let me encourage you to do some soul searching. Just have some people who aren't impressed with you in your life (laughs) say, hey, I see this in you or not. You seem like your relationship with the Lord is good, or maybe you seem angry. You seem frustrated. But whatever it is, be honest with the Lord. Talk to him like a child talks to their dad or their mom. Be completely vulnerable. You know, marriage counselors will often say that when marriages are struggling, it's the ones that are yelling and getting it out that feel more hopeful than the ones who go silent and stuff it. Don't stuff it. If you're frustrated with God, if you're confused about something, if you feel alone or he's not listening, and I know I say that at Grace Bible Church, right? Because we've all got it. We all know the word of God and we're all walking with Jesus. You know, we're not. Feel that freedom to be honest with God, just like David did. And I want to say this. Sometimes God just feels silent to us. And there are multiple reasons why God might feel silent. Let me give you a couple. He might feel silent because we're just not listening. He might feel silent because of unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin breaks fellowship with God. And until we bring that to the light, it is hard to listen. It's hard to hear. He might be speaking to us anyway. It might be because he's developing us. And we need to be patient. There's a great little Max Lucado children's book about Wormy and Hermy. And they're caterpillars. And they're bland caterpillars, just green. And they keep seeing all the beautiful butterflies and all that stuff. And they keep crying out to God, God, why are we so boring? We're so frustrated that the world seems like it's got everything going for it. And yet we feel so left out. And the voice of God says, Hermy, Wormy, be patient. I'm not done with you. Just wait. How long? How long? How long? How long? Just wait. I'm not done with you. There's a surprise coming. It might be that he's not working in you. It might be he's using you to work in somebody else. To develop and grab the attention of someone else. It might be that God's timing is better than your timing or my timing. It might be that God's outcome is better than your outcome and my outcome. And he's saying, hold on, just wait. Ultimately, I don't know why, from circumstance to circumstances, why God may be silent for a time. But the psalm doesn't try to answer that question. It just brings us back to who. And before we jump into verse 5 and verse 6, I want to tell you a real-life story. Some of you may know um, Ron and Susie Howard. 
They're an older couple. For many, many months and years, they have been in the foyer greeting people. But Ron has Alzheimer's. And uh, they haven't been here for a little while. And I called them this last week. I called Susie to say, just to check in, see how they're doing, where they are, what's going on in life. And she shared with me a story. And I went, Susie, can I share this story with the congregation on Sunday? Because this is awesome. And so she wrote me 11 pages of a handwritten letter. And I'm not going to read all of it to you, but I want to tell you, I want to sum up a little bit and I want to read you a part of it. And here's what happened for her. And it made me think of this psalm. I was like, this is perfect for this psalm. Because here's what happened for Susie. And if you know anyone with Alzheimer's, you have a loved one with a disease that is ongoing and long like that, it is it's difficult to watch your spouse of so many years forget who you are. Well, I don't think he's forgotten her, but really struggle with a lot of stuff. And so over the last year, as I've... Susie's been out there greeting people with me and Ron was handing out bulletins. You may have seen him with a white beard. She would walk in on Sunday mornings and be ever more stressed, ever more close to tears, struggling. And she shared with me in this letter that one of her life acronyms is FROG, fully rely on God. And so she has little frogs all around her house, Little frog dish soap, little frog thing in the bathroom, little frog on the mantle, little statues, little things to help her remember that when she sees them as a, as a grab her mind to fully rely on God. But as she's watched her husband's Alzheimer's progress, things have gotten harder and she found herself kind of like David. How long? When will there be relief? What are you doing? Where are you? Why are you? Seeming, I'm praying to you, I'm seeking you, but you don't seem to respond. You don't seem to show me any direction. Where are you, Lord? And last September, she hit her, as she put it, she says, I was wired to the max. Ron, when he sees his reflection, doesn't recognize himself. So he thinks it's somebody trying to get in the house. And she has covered up mirrors and windows and everything, but she left one little slip near the door where she forgot to do that. And Ron saw that, and he got completely angry, and he was looking for the man who was trying to break in the house, and he was just in a rage. And he took it out on his wife, not because she deserved it, just because he was in a rage. And it took some time, but they finally got her calmed down, got him calmed down. And the next morning, just praying to God, God, please, give, please, how long are you going to let this go? She gets Ron in the car to run some errands, and she looks down on the ground, and she sees. Let me read this to you. It says, the next morning, I got him calm. No remembrance of the previous night's events. And after breakfast, I needed to take some errands to make a run to the grocery store, etc. So I got him securely buckled in the front seat of the car, and I walked around to the driver's side. And I was opening the door, I glanced down, and there on this pebbly cement driveway was this thing. What on earth is that? I thought. I bent over and I picked it up. It was a totally dry, dehydrated frog. Of all things, 
not smashed or squished, but a full-size, sprawled out, fully intact, dehydrated, and totally dried out frog. And she saw that and she said, that's where I am. Lord, I've not been relying on you. This is where my reliance has been. It is dried out. I have nothing left. I am so weak. And she took that moment of that aha moment and said, God, that's where I'm at. I've taken my focus off who you are. I'm letting my circumstances and the events that are unfolding and a chronic illness and my frustrations, and I'm letting that dictate my mindset, my attitude, and where I am. And I need to just be honest with you, Lord. That's where I am. And you've shown me where I'm at. And so I'm going to choose to look at who you are. And that is what David does. Look at what David says right here. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Does anybody know what a chiasm is? A chiasm is a a structure, especially used in, you can see it in the New Testament from time to time, but it's used in Hebrew poetry. And it's A-B-B-A. And the idea is this outside are similar. It's a parallelism, and it's meant to highlight something on the inside. And look what it says. You're going to see past, future, future, past. Past. I have trusted in your loving kindness. He is looking in the past. I have trusted in your loving kindness in the past. So in the future, I will shall rejoice in your deliverance because I know that your salvation, your deliverance will come even if it's not right now. Future, I will sing to the Lord because of the past, because you have dealt bountifully with me. His, God's past faithfulness informed David's present faith. It's a great illustration for David. David knew this in his life. He starts to look back over his life and he's realizing God's been faithful to me. Watch this. 1 Samuel 17, 34. This is when David is going to go fight Goliath. And he, if you know this story, he shows up with a lunch. Goliath's on the other side with the Philistines chanting, send one warrior from your army and we'll be your slaves if you can defeat me. And nobody from the Israelite army wants to go. But David says, I'll go. And when he goes before Saul, King Saul, to tell him why, this is what he says. Listen to this. He's looking in the past And he's going, I've seen what God can do in the past, so I know what God can do in the future. And right now, he says, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from its mouth. And when he rose up again against me, I seized him by the beard and I struck him and I killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. And the Lord was. I love this quote. This is, From a DTS prof I had, he said, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he is too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. 
So that's what David does. He remembers God's faithfulness. He remembers his loving kindness. He says, I have trusted in your loving kindness. That's what he says. And this loving kindness is a really powerful word. A very powerful word in the Old Testament. A lot of times people think of the Old Testament, they think of the wrath of God. But the reality is, what you see in the Old Testament is a God who is absolutely loving and gracious. And it's this word that describes him more than any other word. That he is loving kindness. This idea is a steadfast love, a loyal love. No matter how I feel, this is who you are, David said. Let me read to you a little bit of, of a definition of steadfast love or, or, or one person's thoughts. It says, this is describing this word, said. Loving kindness. It says, God's love is a choice. The emotion or feeling of love is never the lead horse when it comes to God's love. It is not that God does not feel great feelings of love for you. Rather, it is that his love is immovable, set upon his children. And from that determined love comes feelings and expressions of love. God remains committed to us even when we rebel against him. Even when, we, when he would have to our human mind Every right to walk away from us in our selfishness, he is faithful. He is loving kindness. Loving kindness is loyal, enduring, covenantal love. Loving kindness means one is stating, I will be loyal to you in my choice of you. And when it comes to God, loving kindness is an impenetrable, determined faithfulness. It is the glue of God. God's loving kindness is his vow that he will stick to what he has said. And who he has chosen. It's no wonder that Jeremiah will say this. This is one of my favorite verses in scripture. This would be my life verse. Listen to what it says. Take away the circumstances. Take away everything else. And here's what's left. Watch this. Thus says the Lord. This is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But he's going to say this. But if you're going to boast, what should you boast in? But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises what? Loving kindness justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. You see, for all of David's struggle, for all of his questions and his petition, for the Lord to move, he lands on God's loyal love. You're not going to forget me forever. You haven't hidden your face. You haven't left me alone. You're going to deliver me. His raw honesty comes out. But his honest reflection, what he lands on, what he stands on, is the character of God that he knows to be true because of how it's been revealed. I want to take a moment now, and I want to introduce to you Chris. Chris is a friend of mine. You may have seen him. He was on one of those pictures. And I asked Chris to come up here because Chris has given his life to full-time work in the gospel. And I, and I did this on purpose because I didn't want to bring someone from the congregation who isn't in full-time ministry, because a lot of times we can think, well, the professionals have it all together. Brian Fisher has it all together. Blake Jennings has it all together. 
They don't struggle with these questions. But I want to say everybody struggles with these questions. Everybody struggles with God in silence. And I want Chris to share kind of his story, his Psalm 13. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, January 2007, about 10 years ago, when I stood in the airport in Washington, D.C. I had just been a youth pastor in a small town in Kansas, and my wife had led the junior high ministry, to, we're talking 800 people in Kansas, a town of 800. And uh, I remember hugging my dad, and my dad said to me, I've never been more proud through my tears. Tears streaming down his face, only the second time I'd ever seen my dad cry. Hugged a few other friends that had shown up to, to see us, and then I scooped my, my one-year-old daughter up and my three-year-old son, and I think in one of the greatest feats of strength that I've ever pulled off in my life, I had like everybody's carry-ons and everybody's personal items and a child care seat and two kids, and I walked down the aisle of a plane, and everybody was looking at me like this, like, please don't sit next to me, you know, <laughs> and we were boarding a plane to move to Kazakhstan, a country that I didn't even know existed a couple years before, and it doesn't, it's not like Borat says it is, okay, if you've seen that movie, but If you'd have ripped my heart open at that time, it was 50% fear, what in the world am I doing, and 50% faith, like, God, would you use us to to reach this one town? You can see Kokshatal up towards the top. Would you use us to reach this one city? Could, Could it be that we could see a church planted in this northern city where the gospel is not known? Could that be us? And so we got off the plane and I, and, uh, got into this strange city and, um, in the middle of the night, I remember putting my kids down in the apartment and running. I was afraid we wouldn't have hot water for some reason. And, and if you know anything about former Soviet countries, they have scalding hot water and plenty of it. And God just kind of gave me that gift to, to assure me that he was going to be with us. So we enrolled in Russian language school. And I remember we would put, take, give my kids over to the nanny that didn't speak any English and we would walk to language school just wondering how much candy, how many cookies, how many movies and caffeine our kids would consume while we were gone. Because when we would come back, we, we needed nothing more than a nap after just banging our head against Russian. And they needed nothing more than to burn all that sugar and caffeine off. And it was just a year of like kind of living in the days of learning Russian. But we knew that it was for a purpose, that God was going to reach the north of Kazakhstan and that we got to be a part of it. And we were just full of faith and yet still full of fear because we didn't really know what we were doing. In all these ways, and months turned into months turned into a year, and it was time to move from a southern city up to the north. And uh, we were excited. We we moved up there, and uh, it was negative forty. I mean, we we moved in January, which was really stupid. Um, and it was negative forty uh, that first night, and that's cold. I don't know if you've anybody ever experienced negative forty. I mean, we're talking really cold. And uh, immediately we began to hit visa issues. There's just a lot of bureaucracy. It wasn't like some awesome story of, of anything other than just good old-fashioned Soviet leftover bureaucracy. And for six months, we, we lived in this apartment as we continued studying Russian. And we, we tried to engage ourselves with three different companies to, to get visas. But nobody would, would register our visa. We would get real visas, but they wouldn't register them. And I remember for six months, my wife didn't buy a mop or a broom because we didn't know if we would be there the next day. We didn't know if we'd have to leave the country because we just couldn't get this visa thing figured out. But we still had confidence that God was going to reach the north. Well, that confidence just kind of went to pot as the months carried on. And at about the six-month mark, we got the call that all of our options had been exhausted. We'd even gone to the southern country of Kyrgyzstan for a month. 
uh, to, to kind of reset the system. And we came back with a new visa and thought this was it, and they wouldn't register it. And so I remember gathering our belongings and our friends taking us to the airport, and we had to leave. And I was, I was really mad at God. I mean, I was, it's still in me. You can hear the energy that's still in my, I was really mad. We had given up everything. We had, we had sold our house, sold all our belongings. We can, you can go to Kansas and see our belongings in all our friends' houses right now. I mean, they got some good dishes over there. And I remember as we flew home, I was so mad because I had no idea. I was still just ticked. Like, how could you do this, God? What, the, what, and I, sorry, some words I probably shouldn't say in church would come out if I let my real energy come out. I remember elbowing my wife and saying, Nancy, I have no idea what we're going to do. And I even said, like, I can guarantee you one thing. I'm not going to be a pastor and definitely not a large church. And God had other plans. He took us to this church. Uh, if I could imagine, like, the nightmare, it was a suburban Texas church with a Christian school in, in Austin. And it was just like, oh, I can't believe we landed there as the missions pastor. And I was mad. I was really mad at God still. I had a hard time in church. I would stand up and just have to leave. I couldn't worship this God for a long time. And there was a day when this picture came to my email, this map. And I just wept. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Because God put me in a church in this journey where he was doing more than I could ask or imagine this whole time. A church that, that loved Central Asia, and we continued to send people and resources over. And, and that little tiny city up there is just one city that I couldn't even dream of possibly reaching that city. But this map is a picture of just one stream of church plants that we got to be a part of. Every circle is a place where there's at least two generations of churches. And down in the bottom, the very southern circle is a place where this morning, ah, uh, man, there's, there's a church that met in living rooms where men were, were killed for the gospel. And while I thought God had abandoned me and that he had wasted all of that, he was doing so much more. Because he's so much, such a better God, than, such a better father than I ever thought that he saw fit to see thousands come to Christ in Central Asia. And now I get to be a part of, of our church, of, of training folks to go into nations and sending this year the network of churches that I get to help lead that are sending people out. We get to train more than 170 folks in this coming year to go into long-term service. And so for me, it, it's literally like that cheesy footprints poem that's kind of on the window uh, or on the refrigerator of your grandma's house, you know, that when I thought God had abandoned me, he was doing his greatest work. And my my anger, my, my madness at him turned into worship and praise again because his plan wasn't thwarted. It was multiplied, and he truly did more than I could ask or imagine. I want to read you the rest of um, the final part of Susie and Ron's story. They... Uh, they quickly found, after finding that frog, direction. Went down to Houston. They found a place where Ron is doing so much better. They're watching him not progress as fastly, as fast 
Susie um, was looking at different retirement communities right around where Ron is, and she looked at a bunch of different ones, and um, she got to one, the last one on the list, and she'd already thought, you know, well, this is the last one, but maybe we should just go check it out because we already, I think we already found the one we're going to be, that I'm going to be at. And uh, it says, when her daughter and her got to this last location, it says, the staff person greeted us and took us into a recently vacated apartment to show us around. She unlocked the door and we went in. Across the living room from the front door was a storage area with a cabinet and open shelves above it. And to our great surprise, there on one of those shelves was a huge plastic green frog. My daughter-in-law and I lost it, laughing wildly. And she ended up being in that apartment. And she went on more pages about thriving than there were about struggling. Just how God's using her and how amazing it's been to be where she's at. Because God is loving kindness. And here's what I'd like us to do. I want you to remember this, that God can handle our confusion, our frustration, and our lament. So I'm going to ask you to pour out your heart before the Lord on a daily basis. Let that be what characterizes us. Talk to your Father. Be completely honest with God. Even if you don't think you can, I want to give you the, the permission and freedom to follow in David's footsteps and just be honest in the rawness of where you are. But then I want to encourage you this. Talk to God like that, but then talk about your Father. Remember who he is. Remember what the Bible tells us that he is. Who his character is. What he is like. That he is loving kindness. I don't want to encourage you. Be a person who talks to God and talks about him. Know him and make him known. And I want to take a few minutes now. We're going to close today in worship. We're going to sing a couple songs. And I want us to do that I want you to keep in mind who God is, that he is the God of loving kindness. But for some of you, you may be, I'm not ready to sing that right now because I'm in the struggle. And I want to ask you, I'll be up here. Um, if we've got anybody else who'd like to come up and pray for people, I want you to feel free to come up and we want to pray for you while we sing. So let us continue and let us take the moment right now to tell God who he is. That he doesn't need us to, but that's what it means to worship him to give him worth and to remind each other who he is. Let's sing. Lord, I come I confess that